Now, the Equal Rights Amendment will positively make women subject to the draft on an equal basis with the men. They want to legislate away any differences between men and women, which will mean goodbye Girl Scouts and hello unisex bathrooms. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about failed constitutional amendments. At the founding, the authors of the Constitution outlined a way to amend the document, and that process worked 27 times. But since the founding, there have been six amendments that did not make the grade, including one to regulate child labor, one to make Washington, D.C. a state, and one to confer equal rights to men and women. The founders intended for the Constitution to evolve, but the process they designed does not function in our fractious political climate. The result is a constitutional order frozen in time. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have set our civil rights ablaze like Satan setting Henry Kissinger's soul on fire. Bye. Right. <laughs> Bye, loser, you fucking evil cretin, ugly ghoul, piece of shit. Bye. Rotten piss, bozo. I hope it fucking hurts how hot it is down there. Yeah, I'm here with Rhiannon. <laughs> hey. Hi. Hello. And Michael. Hey, everybody. We're going to be way late to this by the time mm. this episode comes out. But at the time of recording, it's still fresh. Just a couple days passed. Mm. Henry Kissinger biting it. Mm-hmm. Dead as shit. Finally. Yeah. As dead as anyone has ever been. <laughs> Maximum dead. 100% in hell. Mm. Even if there isn't a hell, even if like one of the religions that doesn't believe in a hell is the correct one, I believe that hell will be created. And for, for Henry for Kissinger. Kissinger. Henry Kissinger will be sent there. Yeah. A little exception to the rule, you know? I posted about this, but how fucking crazy is it to think that the majority of the global population is glad you're dead? Yeah. Like mm. most people on the planet happy that you're in the ground. Yeah. Anybody who's heard of you, more likely than not, happy you're dead. Right. Yeah. Pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah. Pretty remarkable stuff. <laughs> the closest we're going to get to this is whenever Trump or Biden dies and you get like half the country celebrating. Mm. Right. Which is a lot, even though it's not as much as I think what Kissinger, who there's like a, a global alliance of normal human beings who hate him. I bought a really nice bottle of champagne when Trump got COVID. Just in anticipation mm. that he might die. And I, I started making a playlist, like a celebratory <laughs> playlist. <laughs> I wanted to be ready. I wanted to be ready. I cracked a uh, bottle of pretty nice champagne the other night. Yeah. Kissinger died. It's amazing. <laughs> I called my parents to tell them the news that he was dead. And like my dad's first reaction was, your granddad would have been so happy. Yeah. Three generations celebrating, right? Like- right. It's very interesting because I did see occasionally someone online being like, you know, normal people don't celebrate when someone dies, no matter who it is. Mm. But then I was like texting my mom, who's like the most normal woman on earth, yeah. you know, has none of this sort of like hyper cynical wishing death upon political enemies thing that we all do. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I was like, Kissinger died, and she was like, he was loathed in our household growing up. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> the consensus on this is incredible. Really is. No political issue unites us like this. No. A great moment. A great mo- <laughs> moment for yeah. all of society. Yeah. So today, big strong pivot here, <laughs> we are talking about failed constitutional amendments as... Long-time listeners know our Constitution sucks. <laughs> As a result, you might want to amend it from time to time. Yeah. Mm. And there is a process for that. First, two-thirds of each House of Congress must pass the amendment. Then it goes to the states, and three-quarters of the state legislatures must pass it. There's also a way for the process to start with the states where two-thirds of state legislatures agree to call for a constitutional convention, but that has never happened mm. So put that in your back pocket for now. Yeah. Now, the first 10 amendments, of course, ratified in 1791, just after the country's founding. Those are the Bill of Rights. You know, Mm -hmm. the amendments we all 
no and love. Uh, you got your First Amendment for talking, your second for shooting, <laughs> so on and so forth. Near and dear. <laughs> now there are 27. Uh, the most recent was ratified in 1992. Every year, there are dozens, if not hundreds of amendments, perhaps even thousands, proposed in both Congress and at the state level. Throughout all of our history, only six amendments have been approved by Congress and then not ratified by the states. Uh, The first two were near the founding, one within the original Bill of Rights, which we'll talk about. The other four were proposed over the course of the next 200 years or so. And... We thought they would be like an interesting little window into American history. So we're going to talk about them along with a set of amendments that nearly got sent to the states in the 1960s that was particularly disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you think about the Supreme Court, as we do on this podcast, the Supreme Court, particularly the one that we have today, conservative supermajority, you know, reactionary, quite fascist in its tendencies. If you had a working constitutional amendment process, we could be doing a lot to change our constitution outside of what the stupid Supreme Court is saying our constitution means. Mm. And just like we talk about a lot on this podcast, you're going to hear in this episode examples of Congress trying to pass new laws to improve society and the Supreme Court strikes it down. Right. So first things first, we're going to skip one failed amendment from like 1810 or so Mm. about citizenship for people who retain titles of nobility from other countries. What? I'm sure it seemed important at the time, you know, like a a French duke was trying to become a citizen and you were like, no, not until you renounce (laughs) The French. (laughs) This was a time of conflict with Europe, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So let's move on to the failed amendments that we're actually going to dive into here. The first was one of the original 12 proposals for the Bill of Rights. Originally intended to be the First Amendment. Mm. That's right. And the only one that wasn't actually ratified is the Congressional Apportionment Amendment. Now, this was a way of scaling up the number of representatives in the House of Representatives as the population increased, eventually capping the number of people a congressman could represent at 50,000, which would mean if this were to be in effect today, the House would have over 6,000 representatives, right? It would rock so hard. It would be so (laughs) cool. (laughs) It would probably result in representatives who more accurately represented the population in their district, right? Mm -hmm. Who are more responsive to the people in their district. It would probably result in more Democrats. It Uh, (laughs) it would probably end gerrymandering. It's much harder to gerrymander on that scale. Right. The amendment was actually one state away from passing early on during the founding, but states kept getting added to the union, which would like increase the threshold for ratification Mm -hmm. because it needs to be three-fourths. So it never got there. And no state has ratified it since 1792. Mm. And there's not a ton to say about this. I think it's sort of a fascinating little story. And it's also interesting because at the founding, especially the Constitution was so fundamentally like pseudo-democratic and even Mm anti-democratic. And so the fact that there was this potential amendment that nearly got in there that would have made the House way more democratic than it currently is, is sort of just fascinating. Yeah. And it was actually very close to passing. Like the final state, or Connecticut could have been the final state. It passed like their lower house, but the upper house had some quibbles with like, I think the language or the whatever. But then in the following term, the upper house passed it, but then the lower house couldn't <laughs> or, or something like that, where it's like the two houses in Connecticut weren't really on the same page. But now some people think that like actually they did get on the same page and it was just never transmitted to Congress and it should have been considered ratified mm. at the time and mm-hmm. whatever. But yes, this was like very, very close to being the First Amendment. Right. And imagine a world where you don't know who Lauren Boebert is. Oh my you know? God. Wow. That is the world we could have lived Where in. Where she only has one six thousandth vote, right? right? Right. Barely matters. On the other hand, a world where we don't know who George Santos is. Yeah, that's right. That's mm, right. Is it worth it? Is it know. worth it? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Can we get a cameo of him to insert here? <laughs> I don't think we have $40, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I wasn't aware... That Santos was doing cameos, and now I'm 100% going to get one. I don't know what for, but I'm going to find an occasion. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the next 
failed amendment we want to talk about is the Corwin Amendment from 1860-61, which was about preserving slavery's special status in the Constitution. Bizarre amendment. It reads, no amendment shall be made to the Constitution, which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. Basically saying the federal government will never have the power to prevent a state from having an enslaved labor class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So saying that the decision of whether or not a state will have slavery or not, that's just going to be left up to the states themselves. And the federal government isn't going to be able to make that decision for a state. Now, what's interesting about this is that this was actually being brought by the Republican Party. Corwin was a House Republican and uh, an ally of Abraham Lincoln. William Seward was the Senate sponsor. And for more context on Seward, he was a more radical Republican than Lincoln. He was the man Lincoln beat for the nomination in 1860, in part because moderates were worried that Seward was too radical on slavery. His wife was actively involved in the Underground Railroad and used his home as a sanctuary for fugitives. He was too cool. Yeah. He had given a speech in the Senate denouncing Dred Scott, the Chief Justice Robert Taney, and President Buchanan. And it apparently pissed them off so much that he was barred from the White House. And Taney apparently promised that if Seward were the nominee and were to win the presidency, he would refuse to swear him hmm. in. <laughs> That's the kind of constitutional crisis I would like to see, honestly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, Lincoln beat him in part because Lincoln had a reputation for being more moderate on slavery and abolition. So what's going on here? This is weird, right? Well, the Republican Party's platform at the time their sort of compromised position was that they would leave the South alone, but no new states would be admitted into the Union as slave states. Right. And this was a big debate around Kansas in particular, mm. whether that would be admitted as a free state or a slave state. Yeah, my boy John Brown was weighing in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so immediately after Lincoln wins, while Buchanan is still president, several Southern states secede which throws the whole political order into chaos. And there are a number of efforts before Lincoln is even inaugurated to coax seceding states back into the fold and, more importantly, to prevent border states uh, like Maryland, Kentucky, North Carolina, and especially Virginia from seceding. Mm -hmm. Virginia had big practical and symbolic importance symbolic because it's a big state. It's one where a lot of the founding fathers and American political leaders had come from. And practically because DC is essentially in Virginia. Right. So if it were to secede, that is like extremely dangerous to the establishment, the political establishment, mm -hmm. right? So there were a number of efforts and the Corwin Amendment was, I guess, what you could call the most successful among those efforts. And the idea was, look, we will put it in the constitution that we will leave the Southern states alone. Like we're not going to allow Kansas or any other new territories in as slave states, mm -hmm. but states that already are slave states, you will be permanently protected in the constitution, your ability to do that. This was their effort. So it passes both houses with the requisite two thirds votes. President Buchanan, who's still the president at the time and who has no role in the amendment process, nonetheless signs the congressional ratification mm -hmm. and is like a pretty vocal supporter. Even though that's not part of the process. Yeah, it's not a thing. He's just doing it symbolically. Yes, exactly. And as newly elected president, Lincoln sends the amendment to several governors for ratification with a note saying like he has no objection to it being, you know, the law of the land, while at the same time putting pressure on his allies to fight the admittance of new slave states, right? So this is very much in line with the sort of moderate Republican position at the time. The South doesn't really trust them or believe in it, so it doesn't really get ratified. It doesn't convince anyone. Virginia does secede. And obviously, a few months into Lincoln's presidency, Fort Sumter is attacked and the political crisis turns into a shooting war. And so this whole effort sort of peters out, because what's the fucking point, right. right? Now we're just in a war. But that is the Corwin Amendment. 
interesting little bit of history. That's a good one. It's so weird that like you don't learn about that. You don't learn when this you learn stuff. about the Civil War, <laughs> yeah, right? It's, like yeah. it's not a big part of our Abe Lincoln narrative that he right. did try to give them a little bit of slavery, permanent protection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, you can have slavery, but that's it. Yeah, right. No other states can have slavery. Right. Yeah. And they were like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Kansas needs slavery. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. We are ready to fight for slavery in states that don't even exist yet. <laughs> that's right. right that's right so fucked um <laughs> they were like looking at a map and seeing like early depictions of like hawaii and like tears streaming down their face being like one day there will be slaves there <laughs> moving from one dark topic to another uh as we do on this podcast Child labor, 1924. <laughs> yeah. Although this amendment, it wasn't protecting child labor or extending it anywhere. It was trying to really eradicate or limit child labor in the U.S., but a failed amendment. Mm. So let's position ourselves. We're in the progressive era, right? period in the first 20, 25 years or so of the 1900s when there was sort of increased class consciousness and activism around eliminating political and corporate corruption, wanting more government regulation, especially over these increasingly massive industries, right? But note, you know, it's called the progressive era. They did hate immigrants. And mm. this was not a movement necessarily focused on racial equality. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. OK, so this social movement coincides with the Lochner era, which we've talked about on the podcast before. It's a period of time, again, at the early 20th century where the Supreme Court, the justices at the Supreme Court are striking down regulations and legislation, especially relating to the economy. Basically a time of judicial activism where the justices were like, we don't like it when the economy is regulated by Congress. We don't like this economic policy, right, that Congress is passing. We think the better policy is to have unregulated, unfettered industry, right? So the Lochner era is known as a time where the court was purportedly upholding a freedom of contract, what was known as the freedom of contract back then, basically saying like individuals, bosses, businesses, all parties should have total freedom to enter into the contracts they agree on, right? Without government regulation. And what that means is like, you know, if a boss wants to hire some guy for five cents an hour, then great. That's your freedom of contract. <laughs> yeah. If you agree to work at a job where you get no days off ever and you're never paid overtime, great. That is your that's right. your yeah. right. Exactly. That's just two guys shaking hands. <laughs> exactly. And if a child gets hired for a job, that's fucking awesome. That's just a guy and a little boy shaking hands. Yes, that's exactly. a free market at work. Yes. And that rules. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Are you telling me that a 48 year old man can't make a gentleman's agreement with a seven-year-old child <laughs> about working in the mines? About labor conditions? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Get big government out of my life. So you have at this same time, progressive activists and journalists kind of documenting and uncovering horrible working conditions and coercive relationships between industry and workers. Right. At the same time, you have Congress trying to legislate to regulate these industries and you have the Supreme Court striking down those regulations left and right. Looking into this child labor amendment, I was looking into this history at the National Archives website, and I learned about this photographer, Lewis Hine, who was a photographer at this time taking photos of child laborers across the country. And these photos were really widely disseminated and they worked to mobilize Congress, right, to mm. pass legislation that attempted to regulate child labor in the U.S. You know, one photo I saw, it's a little girl in pigtails next to this like massive cotton spinner. Uh -huh. It's a 1908 photo. And Hine wrote a little caption. It said, one of the spinners in Whitnell Cotton Mill, this is Whitnell, North Carolina, she was 51 inches high, has been in the mill one year, sometimes works at night, runs four sides, makes 48 cents a day. When asked how old she was, she hesitated, then said, I don't remember. Then confidentially, I'm not old enough to work, but I do just the same. Out of 50 employees, 10 children about her size. Jesus. There's another photo, a little boy with a bucket in like this farm field in Maryland. Lewis Hine writes, Johnny Yellow, a young Polish berry picker on Bottomley Farm, 
says he's 10 years old and has gone to Biloxi, Mississippi for nine years with his family. He has worked there in winter and here in the summer for three years. He is stunted, being only 39 inches high. Mm. Many of these children are stunted. Yikes. So these photos are getting published, right, nationwide, and people are seeing it. Congress is moved, right? Congress wants to act to end exploitation of young children like this. And so they do. In 1916, Congress passes the Keating Owen Child Labor Act. It banned the sale of products basically from industries, manufacturers that employed children, right? But the Supreme Court overturned that law, said it was unconstitutional. That case is Hammer v. Dagenhart, in which the Supreme Court said, Congress, you don't have the power to regulate commerce Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. way. So Congress turns around and acts again in 1919, They're trying to regulate child labor again, this time through congressional power to tax. This was the child labor tax law, and it imposed a 10 percent tax on the profits of any company that employed children. But the Supreme (laughs) Court struck that down also. (laughs) Child labor must continue, right? This is freedom. We're not going to be swayed by pictures of dusty children, okay? We're men of reason. (laughs) That's right. They say the tax is a penalty. You can't penalize employers for using child labor. No, 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 no. So that law gets struck down, right? So Congress is like, what the fuck? Like, we're seeing eight-year-olds working at bakeries, and we're seeing 10-year-olds working at cigar factories, and they all fucking smoke (laughs) the cigars at the same time. And 12-year-olds are working in mines, and they have black lung. Like, this is a problem. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is saying we have no power to regulate this. So that's where we get the proposed amendment. In 1924, an Ohio congressman proposes, and then both houses of Congress pass the Child Labor Amendment, which would amend the Constitution to explicitly say that Congress did have the power to regulate the labor of people under the age of 18, right? Section one of the amendment said, Congress shall have the power to limit, regulate, and prohibit the labor of persons under 18 years of age. Nice tight amendment there. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah, nice and tight, right? The Supreme Court says we can't regulate. We're going to put it in the Constitution and say that we can, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Passed by large majorities in both houses of Congress. It was also extremely popular in the general public as well. But in the following kind of eight years after passage in Congress, only six states ratified the amendment. Now, that's because almost immediately after Congress passed it and proposed sort of ratification to the states, There was a massive anti-amendment propaganda campaign Mm. launched by, of course, the people who benefit most from child labor, right? Manufacturers, especially the agriculture industry, and especially the southern textile industry, Mm. right? They sent out leaflets. They were writing articles. They were cornering state legislators, right? And also getting information out to rural families and farmers saying things Like the amendment will forbid, quote, any farm boy from milking a cow or Sister Susie to wash a dish or sew a button. Mm -hmm. Also, probably worth noting that this is asking the states to sort of cede power, Mm -hmm. right? Right. The states could also pass a law forbidding child labor. Presumably they haven't because they don't want to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a tough sell. Other anti-amendment articles were written titles like Child Labor Amendment, Part of Socialist Program. Child Labor Amendment will open the gates of hell. The farmers are awake. And those are just from Fox News this week, folks. (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) A senator from Mississippi said the goal of the Child Labor Amendment was for the child to become, quote, the absolute property of the federal government. <laughs> yeah. Missouri yeah. newspaper said that the amendment should be renamed, quote, an amendment to the Constitution authorizing Congress to close the door of hope to the youth of America <laughs> and open the gates of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Closing the door of hope and opening the gates of hell is a great line. It is. Great line. <laughs> Sharp. So within two years of the Congress passing the child labor amendment, 13 states had rejected it, Mm. right? And after that, it kind of languished for a few years. Everyone sort of forgot about it and assumed it was dead until there was a bit of renewed energy around passing it. 
Starting in 1933, that year, 14 states ratified it, including some that had previously rejected, right? That brought the total to 20. Eight more states ratified the child labor amendment by 1937, brings the grand total to 28 states. That's where it sits today. Now, in terms of it kind of languishing and, you know, since 1937, no state has ratified it. There's been no action on it. Yeah. And just to interrupt here so people understand the process, there's no like constitutional requirement for how fast the ratification process needs to be. Mm -hmm. So once some states start ratifying it, you know, theoretically, 100 years later, the remaining states could ratify it and that would be fine. Now, what tends to happen is there's a norm now that when you propose a constitutional amendment, you put a timeline on it like seven years. And the Supreme Court said like, yeah, that's fine. You can do that. But there's no actual requirement. So a lot of these amendments sort of languish for many years, nothing happening, but they're still technically on the table. Right. Which is why we need to start a movement to get states to pass the Congressional Apportionment Amendment. That's right. Increase the House of Representatives to 5,000 members. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So at the time the Child Labor Amendment was proposed, Congress did not put a timeline or deadline on it. So yeah, again, that's where it sits today. And the reason why there was no further movement, no other state ratified it since 1937, is because In 1938, Congress passed new legislation that did regulate child labor, and the Supreme Court backed down. The Supreme Court did not strike that law down. Mm -hmm. That legislation, of course, is the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act. That law created a minimum wage, created the 40-hour work week, and it prohibited, quote, oppressive child labor, right? Under the new law, children under 18 couldn't do certain dangerous jobs. Children under 16 couldn't work in manufacturing or mining. Note, though, the timing of this. Like, why didn't the Supreme Court strike down the FLSA? That's because the Lochner era at this point is dead. 1938 is about a year after what's called the switch in time that saved nine. This was FDR's threat of court packing if the Supreme Court didn't reverse its ways, Mm -hmm. right, and start approving or allowing New Deal legislation. So the Supreme Court had really switched. The majority had switched and was now okay with New Deal legislation. So child labor ends up being regulated by Congress, by legislation, by law, instead of a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. And now... It's only happening in a couple states, you know, yeah. your Wisconsin's, you know, the real bottom of the barrel states. Yeah. So we're going to reach the next like technically failed amendment in the 1980s. But first, I want to cover some shit that happened in the 60s. There were some proposed amendments that actually never made their way out of Congress, which means they're sort of not really a failed amendment in the same sense. But they are important and overlooked and Frankly, absolutely psychotic. That's right. So I want to discuss them a little bit. In 1962, the Supreme Court hands down Baker v. Carr, which gave federal courts jurisdiction over redistricting cases, right? Over like how congressional districts are drawn. And believe it or not, that was sort of upsetting for states' rights folks, shall we say, Mm. because drawing congressional lines, that's like a big source of state power at this time. Right. So- They're upset. And following Baker in 62, there was an annual conference of the Council of State Governments, a nonpartisan group that advocates for state rights. They propose three constitutional amendments. I'm going to read them in ascending order of lunacy. (laughs) One, stripping federal courts of jurisdiction over apportionment. Hmm essentially reversing Baker, right? Right. Almost a sensible amendment given the decision and what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Two, removing Congress from the constitutional amendment process altogether. So it only occurs at the state level, (laughs) no congressional approval. Three, establishing another court above the Supreme Court, (laughs) which would include state Supreme Court justices, and would review any Supreme Court rulings that involve issues of federal and state power. 
<laughs> so, yeah, okay, so the federal government is supreme to state government, but what if we did do another level of right. state government on right, top? Right. What about right. that? It's like yeah. a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> sandwich. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> a state government sandwich. So this gets like proposed at this little creepy state government council conference. And without much public attention, states start lining up to support the amendments behind the scenes. Right off the bat, 15 states approved stripping the courts of jurisdiction, 18 states approved removing Congress from the amendment process, and five approved the new Supremer Court right. or whatever. Extra super Supreme Court. Yeah. The extra Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Earl Warren is so disturbed by this that he puts out like a very uncharacteristic call to action in a speech that he's giving. And you start to get like prominent institutions fighting back, including in the media. Newsweek puts out a piece about how this is like an assault on democracy and the Constitution. Mm -hmm. This gets a couple of states to back down. The wind is like out of their sails. And it seems like this crisis has been averted. Then the Supreme Court in 1964 drops another bomb on the states' rights folks in Reynolds v. Sims, which creates this one-person, one-vote principle, which basically means congressional districts need to have, like, roughly the same amount of people in them, mm -hmm. which was actually not a thing before 1964, <laughs> technically. Right. This was, again, upsetting to many people, one of which was Everett Dirksen, the legendary Republican senator from Illinois. Now you got some, like, Senate buildings named after him and stuff. He's a big deal. He also was from a rural area. He was upset with the idea that urban folks were going to have more influence than rural folks now, right? He liked it when it was him and five other guys uh, <laughs> stretched out across 150 square miles of farmland <laughs> ruling over Chicago right. or whatever. <laughs> but now people in Chicago are going to also be represented fairly and evenly. Mm. And this is infuriating. If you're someone like Everett Dirksen. That's right. Who's, again, whose name is on a building in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so he gets the Johnson administration to suspend implementation of the ruling for a couple of years at the federal level. And then he proposes an amendment that would allow every state to have one of their chambers, meaning like either the state house or the state senate, to be based off of something other than population. He rallies the support of the Chamber of Commerce who were worried about like urban legislators dominating Congress and instituting urban reforms like mm. minimum wages and regulations <laughs> and corporate tax hikes, et cetera. So the basic idea of this amendment is like you have your, you know, state house and you have your state Senate and he wants states to be able to make one of those like not democratic, <laughs> like just, right. just a bunch of elites or whatever the state wants them to be, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can imagine like what the Senate used to be, not something that was popularly elected, mm -hmm. something that was elected by the, you know, the, the fanciest boys or whoever. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what he's envisioning here, but every state would have the possibility to make half of their state chamber undemocratic flat out. Right. It's so hilarious when people in the government don't want people to be represented yeah. based on where people are, yeah. <laughs> where they exist, the number of people that exist in certain places. The sort of like argument over whether like Wyoming should have as much representation as New York mm -hmm. when Wyoming has 500,000 people, it gets frustrating because if your position is basically like, this is what the Constitution says. There's no way around it. Fine. But if you try to tell me that it makes sense, <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to lose my mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For some reason, this argument is compelling. The idea that like, oh, we're going to get ruled over by the urban types. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, there, there are more of them. I don't know what to tell you. This is a, a, just yeah. democracy 101 here. Right. Right. So you have the Chamber of Commerce types rallying in support of this amendment. This in turn perks up the AFL-CIO, to spring into action. They make it their top priority, and they start lobbying against the amendment. And as a result, Dirksen gets 57 votes, nine short of the number needed to get the amendment to the states for ratification, where it would almost certainly pass, given that it's giving the states a lot of power. So, okay, Dirksen takes the L. Then 
He says, I'm going to try this again, except this time I'm going to enlist a bunch of lobbyists, do a big PR blitz, see how that goes. This time he falls three votes short. (laughs) Then tries to rally the states to call for a constitutional convention, which, remember, (laughs) is the other way to pass an amendment. So, like, rather than doing it in Congress first, he's going to the states and being like, if I can get two thirds of the states to call for a constitutional convention, we'll pass it that way. True crank shit. (laughs) I want to be clear before I move on that what a constitutional convention is, is we don't really know. Yes. (laughs) There are no real rules in the Constitution other than like this is how you call one. There's been one in American history. Mm. They called it back at the founding because they wanted to convene to edit the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. And what happened was they instead scrapped the whole thing and came up with a new constitution. Yeah. No one even knows who gets to decide and vote Mm. like that's not in the constitution so we have no idea what this looks like and it's very possible that this just results in the reformulation of the constitution top to bottom yes just redoing it Mm -hmm. right so he gets within two states he gets to 32 states before the new york times finds out (laughs) And publicizes it. (laughs) This is all under the radar. And he's sort of like trying to do it quietly on purpose because his big PR blitz didn't work. So he's like, all right, we're going to go the other direction. Do it at the states and do it quiet. People get so freaked out by the prospect of a new constitutional convention that the effort collapses two states short. That is how close we got in like the mid 60s (laughs) to the end of the United States government as it is currently constructed. (laughs) And tell me if you guys have, but I had never heard this fucking story before in my life, before I read it in a book about the Supreme Court. No, I've never heard this until you're telling me now. This is the first time. Just the wildest thing I've ever fucking heard. We were two states away from a constitutional convention in the 60s. If you try to fucking Google this, you can barely find anything. It's remarkable. Yeah. It's right. remarkable. Yeah. Dirksen like goes on a couple years later to try to do another amendment to reverse the school prayer decision. <laughs> and that doesn't work out. But he loves the idea of a constitutional amendment. Yeah. He'll do anything. He's addicted to this. This is dogged determination. He'll do anything to get a constitutional amendment. Got that dog in him. Yeah. But if you look up like the Dirksen amendment, it goes to school prayer. People talk about the school prayer one, not the time that he almost called a constitutional convention <laughs> successfully. That is insane. So and functionally overthrew the United States government. And, you know, this is mid-60s. We've talked about, like, the sort of opposition to the Warren court Mm. in the South, especially in this era before. Imagine what that constitution would have looked like. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. And, Michael, you said when we were talking about this in prep, it's like the continued fighting of the Civil War. Right. 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 Like, the political conflict remains about the balance of power between the states and the federal government and whether urban northern liberals get to tell the South how they have to treat their citizens, right? right? Right. That is the fundamental political conflict that has been going on for 200 years. Right. Right. And whether popular government, whether representation in government is going to be for property owners, people who own land in rural places. Mm -hmm. Wealthy elites. Exactly. Or for people who live in cities. Right. Right. So that is my little sidebar about the Dirksen amendments and this brief time in the 1960s where the United States government was almost completely restructured, the Constitution rewritten from scratch, government overthrown. (laughs) However you want to characterize this, everything you know about our society almost upended completely. Right. And uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about it because I had never fucking learned about this. And that seems weird to me. So if someone out there listening to this learned about this in school, and I don't mean while getting your master's in like political science or something, I need you to reach out because this is fucking me up. Right. So that was the minor restructuring of our government that was going on in the 60s, perhaps. Moving on to an amendment fight that took place mainly in the 70s. Although the amendment was actually originally written in the 20s, we want to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment. So the Equal Rights Amendment says, quality of rights under the law shall not be denied or bridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And 
the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So it's somewhat modeled off like the 14th Amendment in that it not only creates a new right specifically about a sex or gender-based equality right, but empowers Congress to legislate. Right. It creates a new head of power since Congress is has enumerated powers and it can't do anything unless it's pursuant to one of its enumerated powers. So this was first drafted and proposed in 1923, shortly after the passage of the 19th Amendment and enfranchisement of white women in the United States. It didn't get a vote then. It was proposed in, I believe, every legislative session for 50 years, but never once gets a vote. For most of that time, Representative Emanuel Seller was chair of the House Judiciary Committee and uh, according to the Brennan Center, refused to allow a vote on it for 30 years. Normal. Yeah. Normal reaction to gender equality. Yeah, totally normal behavior. <laughs> it's wild that it's just like, why don't women have like a constitutional right to equal rights in this country more explicitly? Because this one guy who obviously hates women, imagine how much this guy hates women. Right? Yeah. Yeah. To be on like year 28 and be like, I'm still doing yeah. it for sure. Yeah. Right. You shall not pass. Yeah. Yeah. So what changes? How does this eventually get a vote? Cribbing a bit from Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer's excellent book, Fault Lines, the American economy changed and American life generally. So deindustrialization in the 60s and 70s meant a lot of manufacturing jobs were being replaced by lower paying service jobs, which in turn meant that the ability of men to be the single and sole breadwinner and support families was declining which meant married women were being increasingly forced into the workforce and increasing the number of women in the workforce. At the same time, divorce rates were skyrocketing, which meant there were a lot more single women who had to earn for themselves, also pushing up the number of women in the workforce. And once in the workforce, they were experiencing a new side of American life, (laughs) which is pay discrimination, sexual harassment, disrespect, (laughs) and on the plus side, union organizing, which led to a transformation of women as a political force in America and the increasing salience of feminism as both an ideology and a politically powerful idea. So you have women entering the workforce, becoming aware of shitty conditions there, and organizing. They gained some victories, one of the big ones being the inclusion of sex in the Civil Rights Act, Mm -hmm. which, as we've mentioned before, was originally included as a poison pill by a conservative Democrat who wanted to kill the Civil Rights Act. And he thought, no way will anyone ever actually go for this. If we say women have civil rights, no, 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 no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. But at this point, there actually were a few women in Congress, and they shamed their colleagues. Apparently, when this was like first introduced, there was a lot of laughter, and uh, female representatives shamed their colleagues and pointed to the laughter as proof that, like, actually, this provision is badly needed in the Civil Rights Mm -hmm. Act, and so it's passed. (laughs) I like that that worked. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys were like, you're right. I'm being mean and I'm going to give women equal rights in the workplace. <laughs> the problem is that the Civil Rights Act is enforced by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which goes on to reject the first 4,000 complaints they receive about gender discrimination entirely. Every single one, just boom, goodbye. And so this is the backdrop in the late 60s and early 70s for a renewed push to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. And so Congress actually finally does pass it in 1972 with landslide bipartisan majorities, 84-8 in the Senate, 354 to 23 in the House. Nixon and Ford both supported it. I think 30 states ratified it in the first year out of the required 38, and it seemed like it was cruising to full ratification. But a couple things. One, Congress had attached a deadline to its ratification and said, you got to meet the 38 state threshold by 1979. And two, 
conservative reactionary forces started mobilizing against this, very similar to the child labor stuff. Right. Particular name you should know in this context is Phyllis Schlafly. The Stop ERA campaign, which tried to reframe the debate about hurting families. There's a lot of scaremongering. I have one of their flyers open here, and it says, ERA will hurt the family. It will invalidate all state laws which require a husband to support his wife. Will impose on mothers the equal financial obligation for the financial support of their infant and minor children. Will deprive senior women of the right to be supported by their husbands and to be provided with a home. Eliminate wives from getting to draw from their husband's social security benefits. Compel states to set up taxpayer-funded child care centers for all children, regardless of need. And one of my favorites will legalize homosexual marriages and permit such couples to adopt children and get taxed in homestead benefits now given to husbands and wives. Okay. Real nightmare shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's definitely what it was going to do. It was going to make being gay legal and then just kick elderly women onto the streets. <laughs> that's right. That's what 1988 was going to be like, <laughs> yeah. if not for Phyllis. Right. Police coming to your house and snatching your kid to bring them to the government daycare center. Right. So this is wildly successful, this effort. So successful that the ERA gets to 35 states, three away from ratification before these efforts start to really pick up steam, the stop ERA efforts. But after she really gets going, five states try to rescind their their ratifications Mm -hmm. and no single state after that further ratifies it for decades. And so in the late 70s, realizing the deadline's going to pass, Congress extends it to 1982, but 1982 kind of comes and goes, and it's basically dead until Donald Trump is president, and we get the Me Too era, Mm -hmm. when there is a sort of renewed interest in it, maybe a recognition an increased salience in the need for women to have equal rights in in this country. Mm -hmm. So Nevada uh, in 2017 votes to ratify the ERA, Illinois in 2018, and then finally Virginia, which means that 38 states at this point have voted to ratify the amendment, but five of them subsequently rescinded their ratification, which has questionable legal importance, and three of them long after the deadline, which calls into question their sort of validity. There was some movement by Democrats. Mm -hmm. I think it was Ayanna Presley in 2020 that like they could maybe retroactively lift the deadline and basically call the amendment ratified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to like get too much into discussions about this before we're done with the amendments. But I do think there's something here to highlight, which is sort of understanding the difference between like formal and informal methods of amending the constitution and understanding that the the big obstacle here is not the formal process, right? The big obstacle is the broad consensus. Right. Buy-in. That we need this. If we have that consensus, it will be considered ratified. We don't currently have that consensus, Mm -hmm. which is why checking several different boxes in in the amendment process hasn't resulted in its ratification. Right. Right. That doesn't mean the Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia efforts are pointless. I think they're actually a good step in helping build that consensus. But it is something that needs to be done, mm-hmm. right? That's political work that needs to be done. Just trying to pretend like otherwise there's some sort of political continuity and legitimacy between Nevada in 2017 and like Idaho in 1977 or whatever before they rescinded their ratification and, and being like, oh, yeah, no, we did it. We hit, we checked all the boxes. It's good. It's the amendment. I think that's nonsense. But I do think. There is a path here, but it's one that starts with persuasion and convincing the broader public that this is a necessity right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only question is, which self-hating right-wing woman is going to stand (laughs) up and publicly oppose it this time? 
So that, I think, brings us kind of nicely into the mid 80s, right? Mm -hmm. The deadline on passing the ERA, on ratifying the ERA was uh, 1982. Now we get to 1985, an amendment about the voting rights of a little place called the District of Columbia. Mm. It's a weird place, D.C. Don't know if you guys know this, but the more than 700,000 residents of D.C. do not have full voting representation in Congress, right? Basically, what had happened was the stupid idiot framers of the Constitution in Article 1 right up top said that Congress could establish a federal capital district of 10 square miles and Congress would exercise exclusive legislation in all cases in that capital district. Okay, but what the framers didn't do was provide a means for representation for the people who lived in D.C., right? They didn't really conceive of it as a real place, right? They Mm -hmm. conceived of it as just like a place where there are like... Government buildings. Yeah, there's like laws being done. Right. And then there's like a surrounding hustle and bustle, but that's it. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like originally the big lag between the presidential election and inauguration was because like nobody was going to live in D.C. and you'd have to take your horse and buggy. Right you know, for weeks and weeks to get <laughs> across there. the vast American continent to get there. Yeah, right. Yes. to this fucking swamp yeah. in Washington, D.C. No one wanted to go. Yeah. And so in the Constitution, of course, seats in Congress, votes in the Electoral College, meaning votes for the president, are allocated among the states. But D.C. isn't a state, right? Mm-hmm. It's a district, <laughs> as the worst guy at every party in uh, D.C. will mention. It's not a state. It's a district. Virginia's a commonwealth. Yeah. No one gives a shit. Fuck you. Who cares? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So we do get the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed by Congress and ratified by the states in 1961. That does allow D.C. residents to vote in presidential elections. Before 1961, residents of D.C. could not vote for the president. Okay, and then you get the Home Rule Act of 1973. That's a law passed by Congress that allows residents of D.C. to elect their own mayor and city council. Before this, those were appointed by the president. But who'd they elect? Marion Barry. So. (laughs) (laughs) So. D.C. is all fucked up because it's not a state, right? Mm -hmm. Here's one example. The D.C. National Guard reports to the president, whereas every other state National Guard reports to their governor, right? Mm -hmm. This is why President Trump could deploy the D.C. National Guard troops Mm -hmm. to beat up Black Lives Matter protesters in the summer of 2020, right? right? Or not call them to defend Congress against the riot that he conjured up. My next point. (laughs) Remember January 6th? If D.C. was a state, then the governor or even the D.C. mayor, if you wanted to give it to the mayor, right, could have deployed D.C. National Guard troops much quicker than law enforcement was deployed on January 6th. And that's why when the next change of power happens and Biden's being inaugurated for the second time, he is going to, uh, and I'm talking specifically to that one conservative listener who wrote in during our Q&A episode a couple months ago, he is going to mow you and your friends down. All right. A National Guard is going to be on your ass. Okay. And then DC, in addition, like they just don't have voting representation like they should. So Congress retains a ton of power over D.C.'s budget, right? For example, D.C. legalized marijuana in 2014, but Congress still blocks the district's ability to regulate and tax marijuana. If you've ever been to a dispensary in D.C., it is crazy how they have to do this. Wait, how do they do it? I don't even get it. Michael, were you with us when we went to that dispensary in D.C.? (laughs) No, I did not go to a dispensary with you guys in D.C. I'll tell you, it was a weird experience. (laughs) It felt very off the books, put it that way. So what they have to do is give you a gift of weed. What you're actually purchasing legally is, you know, they have a big sign, a menu of items, right? You're going to get a t-shirt. You are going to get a mug. You're going to get a (laughs) legal item that you can purchase. And then as a gift, because marijuana has been decriminalized in D.C., as a gift, they can give you marijuana with your purchase of the legal item. (laughs) Oh, it's like a... It's like a buy one, get one sort of deal. Yeah, absolutely. Buy a shirt, get an eighth. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's what I've been doing to anyone who subscribes at the $10 tier to five to four. I mail them heroin. (laughs) 
So another crazy thing, another another way that D.C. is hurt by not having proper voting representation is, uh, you know, it was also shortchanged millions of dollars in federal aid because it was treated as a U.S. territory for the allocation of COVID-19 relief from Congress. The degradation of being treated Mm -hmm. like our subjects. Yeah, like Puerto Rico. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, it would also be cool if they got two senators, right? To add two senators from D.C. to the Senate, a place with a lot of voters of color, that would be great. So one side note, it is hilarious that D.C. license plates say taxation without representation. It's like a complaint. (laughs) Like they're complaining on the license plate. Yeah. So. We get another proposed amendment in 1977. It's not quite a D.C. statehood amendment. It's actually not a D.C. statehood amendment. It's a D.C. voting rights amendment, right? Let's amend the Constitution and give D.C. full representation in the Electoral College, full representation in Congress, and full participation in the constitutional amending process. But just like the ERA, Congress put a seven-year deadline on ratification by the states. So the amendment is passed by Congress in early 1978. It's a vote of 289 to 127. The Senate passes it 67 to 32. Wow, D.C. is really going to be a real boy like Pinocchio. But no, the states have to ratify it by 1985. And by 1985, only 16 states had done so. Why? Why, why, why? Well, let's point out, first of all, that not one of those 16 states had a Republican-controlled legislature. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Perhaps that could be because D.C. would almost certainly elect two Democrat senators Mm -hmm. and a Democratic representative to Congress, and they might even be black. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Another thing, civil rights attorney and D.C. statehood activist Joseph Rao Jr. said in a Washington Post op-ed in 1985 when ratification failed, He said, quote, I have come to the conclusion reluctantly that the D.C. business and propertied community, while paying lip service to the Voting Rights Amendment, actually prefers the status quo without congressional representation. That community can now deal directly with the powers on Capitol Hill, whom it enjoys whining and dining socially without having to go through those feared two black, liberal, urban Democratic senators and a congressman to reach Congress. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So no D.C. full voting rights, no D.C. statehood. That's all, folks. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That brings us to the present and this terrible country that you currently inhabit. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe it's worth like stepping back and looking at the amendment process more generally. Mm -hmm. We've had eight amendments to the Constitution, I believe, in the past century. There's been one ratified in the last 50 years, in 92. And that was ratifying an amendment that was proposed at the founding and had been lying dormant ever since, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, what exactly is happening here, right? Uh, The founders wanted the Constitution to evolve, but the process they created is cumbersome garbage, Mm -hmm. right? It just does not work in our current system with politics as they exist in America. And I think it's worth talking about where this all fits into modern legal discourse. Uh, Our listeners have probably heard that there is a debate about whether we should interpret the Constitution as a static document or an evolving one, a so-called living Constitution. Yeah. One of the most prominent arguments against a living Constitution made by conservatives is the idea that the proper way to change the Constitution is not to interpret it differently, but to amend it. Mm -hmm. But like, where does that leave us Yeah, when the amendment process is so thoroughly fucked? Right. Right. You end up having this abstract argument about like the proper way to amend the Constitution. But the actual problem is that we want this country to be able to adapt and evolve as time passes, just like the founders did. It's just that they fucked up (laughs) implementing a process for actually doing that. Right. Which puts us into a position where we are either living with the consequences of that or being a little more liberal with our constitutional interpretation. I don't know how else to look at it. Yeah, that's it. One of those seems like a a lot more practical to me, but, you know, I guess I'm a dreamer. Yeah, it's also worth noting that that's all very much in bad faith and at best their commitment to 
ecstatic constitution is rhetorical. No, right? it's not. Like, it's not real. It's just a counter argument to like expansive interpretations of the Fourteenth right. Amendment. Right. But like DCV Heller is an amendment to the Constitution. Right. Right. Yes. DCV Heller is a monumental Supreme Court case. Right. That changes the Constitution. That was the 2008 case that established that the Second Amendment doesn't just sort of theoretically, quote unquote, protect your right to bear arms. It protects an individual right to gun ownership that changed gun ownership in the United States that changed the interpretation of the Second Amendment. It can be interpreted as a change to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Before DCV Heller, there was no constitutional right to individual gun ownership in the U.S. That's a real change that happened. Yeah. Shelby County v. Holder was a change to the Constitution, creating out of whole cloth like a sovereignty concerns for the states that yeah. trumped the 14th Amendment. But we don't know what part of the Constitution that was an amendment to because John Roberts doesn't even mention it. That's in right. The opinion. <laughs> So, yeah, it's lip service, right? It's rhetorical, mm -hmm. but that's worth saying explicitly. Yeah. I will say that I thought that going through some of this history was more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And each of these failed amendments is like a little window into American history. Mm. And each one upset me in like a unique way. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> I agree. Each, each one is like, just different enough from the last one, but also the same. And they all made me mad. And the only one that wouldn't make me mad, I think, is if we went back and covered the amendment about titles of nobility from other nations or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I guess my thoughts after doing this were that specific problems with the amendment process are, one, I would say, when it's passed to the states, making it pass to the legislature rather than like a popular referenda mm -hmm. is a big problem because the legislatures and the states are hopelessly gerrymandered and terribly corrupt and generally speaking, 10 times worse than the federal government. And we have talked at length about the many problems mm -hmm. with the federal government. And they also are interested in the maintenance of their own institutional power as right. a state legislature, right? Which right. ends up being a problem in a huge amount of these because a lot of these amendments are essentially asking state legislatures to cede their ability to legislate about certain things. Right. And we see this with states that do have like robust referenda processes all the time where citizens pass referenda and then their legislatures fight them on it. Right. right? And we've talked about that. Yeah, it just happened in Florida. Yeah, Florida with voting rights. States with marijuana legalization, mm -hmm. Arizona with their independent redistricting commission. There's just so many examples of this. I think the supermajority requirements in both houses of Congress are totally unnecessary. Like, I think anybody who's been paying attention to American politics at all realizes how difficult it is to pass even by bare majority of vote in both houses of Congress in the current political climate. Adding a supermajority requirement is just overkill. But also good to be reminded that there are other ways to amend the Constitution, right? Like the, the Constitution is not just what's written and not just what's in the Supreme Court document, but how it's popularly understood and how it's understood by elites. The Emoluments Clause has essentially been removed from the Constitution because Donald Trump discovered that you could just flout it mm -hmm. and nobody in any position to enforce it will actually enforce it. Right? right. The Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war. Congress has not declared war since 1942, and yet we have been in a perpetual state of war. Since then, the, the executive branch has figured out they can just do it. Right. They can just right. go to war, and nobody who's in any position to check them has any desire to do so. So I think it's important as informed citizens to think about our political order in that light, right? That we don't need to jump through every formal hoop that seems like a major obstacle. First and foremost, it's about uh, changing popular perception in the political atmosphere. And if you do that, good things will follow. It might be not as quickly as we would like, but uh, that is the first and most important step. And if you do the hard political work and the hard organizing, the formalities will follow. Right. All right, folks, we came up with an idea. 
specifically Rhiannon came up with an idea, but I'll take some credit. <laughs> we are going to interview a couple of folks who have gotten into trouble with their schools and their jobs for taking positions on what's happening in Gaza. And we wanted to interview them, talk to them a little bit about free speech in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and working at law firms. Yeah. We will uh, have a little interview with them coming at you next week. And then we will do our usual end-of-the-year giving episode where we give you our favorite charities and stuff to contribute to. Thank you so much for being premium Patreon subscribers. You guys rock. Yeah. Happy holiday season. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan DeBrew. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Hello, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael. How are we doing? I'm a random man on the internet, and I come here from your good friend, Rachel. Originally, they wanted a George Santos cameo uh, for your podcast, uh, but unfortunately, he stopped doing them for the moment. I apparently have the same name as the Chief Justice of the court, John Roberts, um, so I'm here instead. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't have a clue about American politics. That being said, because I was just intrigued about your podcast, you know, I wanted to see how big you were and all that sort of stuff. I used to do a podcast during COVID. First of all, congratulations, because you, you are doing very well for yourself. Second of all, uh, I gave one of your episodes a listen. Although I don't, you know, really understand the politics behind it. I don't really know the context or anything like that. The way you speak, the way you interact with each other, it's enjoyable. It really is. It's a good listen. So thank you, Rachel, for introducing me. Uh, I hear, unfortunately... You didn't make any 2023 end of the year, you know, best of lists again. However, Rachel is still proud of you. Your fans are still proud of you. And you know what? I'm proud of you as well for carrying on going as long as you have. Big, massive, well done to all of you. Uh, You you know, you're absolutely smashing it. Um, So although I am not John Roberts, Chief Justice of the Court, I am a very, very proud John Roberts nonetheless. Also, I hear you're very glad that Henry Kissinger is dead. Uh, And I've looked him up because, again, not a name I knew. And um, not that I wish death upon anyone, but uh, I'm also quite glad he's dead. So thank you for educating me. 5-4, this has been a pleasure doing this video. Best of luck next year. Hope you all have a great Christmas and New Year and a nice time off. And uh, yeah, bye.